unfortunately, Flint is not the only community in this country that has had issues with water quality, right? Um, I think the unique, one of the unique situations is that it was, um, it went on for as long as it did despite a number of, a number of red flags. They started doing their own citizen science. They started educating themselves and reaching out to outside experts to kind of collaborate and gather more and better data to show that indeed this was a citywide water crisis and they were right. You know, nobody's gone to prison. At this point, nobody's even indicted. There's been no, there's been no legal accountability for anything at this point. We're in the business of truth. We've gotta, we've gotta be able to hold that. We've gotta be able to hold um, complexity, you know, and, um, and, and learning from others and going bravely forth and asking questions is, are, I, I think, the, the most fundamental, way, fundamental ways to grow. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Powering Up, our cross-generational podcast about leadership, power, and gender. I'm Ann Doyle, author of Powering Up, How America's Women Achievers Become Leaders. My co-host and niece, Monica Doyle, will be with us again next week. And as I record this episode, news has just broken of the untimely death of pioneering TV sports broadcaster Phyllis George. You may be too young to remember her as the very first woman ever hired to cover TV sports at the national level in the United States. And okay, the fact that she was gorgeous and Miss America of 1971 absolutely greased her path to a hosting role in 1975 on CBS's Sunday morning program, NFL Today. But let's not forget that it was her skill, her tenacity, and her willingness not to just take the tremendous criticism of fans, including her male colleagues who felt a woman had no place covering sports. Those were the things that um, really made her, uh, helped her stay there once that opportunity was given to her and made her a very, very important role model for the generations of young women who followed her. And she was a personal inspiration to me because in 1978, I was hired by CBS Detroit as one of the very first women TV sports reporters uh, covering professional sports full-time. So I wanna say thank you, Phyllis George, for your courage, your class, and your willingness to go first and take the heat. And for those of you, of you who are listening, if you've never heard of her, I hope you'll take two minutes to Google her because there are plenty of doors left to be open and we all need all the courage we can get. So now for today's important topic, uh, and I have an, another incredibly courageous uh, leader with us as our guest. Uh, wherever you live, even outside the United States, I think the chances are pretty good you may have heard at least a rumbling of the poisoned water crisis in Flint, Michigan, which is a city about an hour north of Detroit. So we're going to dive into what happened, the context, the series of disastrous decisions that led to the lead poisoning of a generation of Flint children, as well as what's happening there today because we are privileged to have as our guest, Anna Clark, 
a freelance journalist and author of The Poisoned City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy, which is really the definitive book about the Flint water crisis. Welcome, Anna. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it was actually six years ago, uh, this spring, April 2014, when Flint uh, switched from water that they had been getting from Detroit uh, for many, many years, very good, clean water, um, to sourcing, sourcing their own water from the Flint River. And it was obviously a very fateful decision. Uh, it was meant to save money by a nearly bankrupt city that had been obviously in decline for decades. Uh, and your book is really the chronicle of one town and the people who both caused of uh, the problems and those who suffered from those disastrous decisions. But it, it really could be the story and probably is the story untold of many American towns. So I wanna begin um, by asking you, Anna, what brought you to this story? Because you didn't grow up in Flint. You didn't even grow up in Michigan. What brought you to this story? Give us a little sense about you. Sure, um, I, I will I'll actually start with like how this how I began to write specifically about the water crisis and then kind of backpedal a little bit. Um, I have been in Detroit for um, since fall 2007 and I've been a full-time freelance journalist now for 10 years. Um, so I, I write about a lot of different kinds of things, including sometimes sports. You know, so I, I think that I write about books and sports and things I like, but the things I, that what I've most come to write about is um, cities. Um, and I've, I've taken a particular interest in disinvested cities and disinvested neighborhoods where the test of our common good ideals are, are pushed to the brink, right? I'm interested in both the inventiveness and ingenious that can come out of crisis. Um, I'm interested in the sort of truths laid bare um, by uh, the day-to-day -day, uh, life, you know, that people have in places like certainly Detroit over, over this time, and but also many other places. Um, and um, I'm interested in um, interrogating what it takes to build more inclusive, just, um, beautiful cities uh, when out of the foundation of, of what we have, where, where um, so much historical baggage is just biting at our heels, right? Yeah, to mix good my way metaphors. to put it. <laughs> yeah, great so, way to put it. Um, so this is, so you can see how I was sort of primed to take a take an interest in Flint yes. as a lot of this was kind of playing out. I'd written some stories about Flint that had nothing to do with water stuff, you know, over the years, occasionally small pieces, um, like when they were going through their first like master plan in 50 years and a few things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the water crisis um, is, it was escalating over a period of time. And I remember taking some notice of dispatches about how the water switch wasn't going well, but it was also kind of confusing. I remember every time I saw like a local news headline about, you know, a problem or another little technical thing or something like this, I was like, geez, you know, um, I, that, that's terrible. And I also would think like, oh, well, as a journalist, I've kind of missed it. Like it's already, it's already peaked, you know, it already, like, you know, <laughs> it already had the thing, but eventually it was clear that that wasn't the case. And while I wish I had been there sooner, like so many people, 
I eventually started writing articles specifically about the water crisis, mostly for a national audience for different, at different places, starting in fall of 2015. Out of those articles came the opportunity to do a book. Somebody reached out and asked about putting it together in a longer, more sustained look, which I was grateful for because it gives you a lot more space to handle a yep. more complex story, a lot more of the history and all of that. Um, and also just a little bit kind of in my background, you're right, I'm not from Detroit or Flint. I did grow up in Michigan, the way on the other side of the state, a little town called St. Joseph that is also, um, that is first of all a Great Lakes town and a river town, just like um, uh, Detroit and Flint is, but also quite different. <laughs> um, but it's also a city that, um, um, a small town that is, uh, uh, it's, it, it's right next to Benton Harbor and their fates are intertwined and really obvious and uh, difficult ways. Um, I grew up with like family roots in both sides and the dissonance, the juxtapositions, the, the inequities, um, you know, kind of early on, I think, set in motion some of the, um, some of the, some of the stories that I would come to spend my adult life dedicated to. Anyone who knows anything about the juxtaposition of those two communities that, as you said, are interdependent, intertwined, but dramatically different uh, mm -hmm. ways of living uh, in the two different cities and opportunities, um, poverty and middle class and more affluent on the other side. Yeah, yeah it, it's just and it's just because they're small. It's a, in some ways it's the same story that plays out in cities all across the country. But because yeah. they're small communities and it's so much more intimate, intimate, you can see things in a in a way that's unusually clear. Um, and it, it's it's anyway like it, and so I it shaped you. Yeah. I mean, your point <laughs> is is that as a yeah. young girl growing up there, um, yep. helping to shape your the questions you started to ask as you became uh, a young woman and then a reporter and a journalist yeah a hundred percent all right so um take us to flint now and for people who uh know very little about flint uh this is a hard question for you because i'm asking you to say to explain a very complex situation in in uh, concisely and that is but give people a little bit of context about flint and um, its struggles uh, that led it to be so vulnerable to what happened here? It, you're right, it is a complex question. Though. I'll try to put it briefly and just have a little asterisk, asterisk being like, the rest is in the book. Um, <laughs> and and it's a fabulous book, yes. <laughs> um, I'm on I page mean, 215, <laughs> almost done, but it's a fabulous book, yeah. Thank you. Um, the, yeah, I mean, well, the first thing I, I, I think that is important to talk about with Flint is like, it is a city that has lost so much over a relatively short period of time. But the first, I think it's important to start with what is there, you know, what is present there. It's not just what it's lost, it's what is there. So it's, um, it's still like in top 10, one of the largest cities in Michigan. Um, it has about um, 97,000 people who live there. It's got four college campuses. It's got, um, it's got, you know, it's a county seat. Um, it's got um, some major medical institutions. It's a, it's a, uh, it's got a lot of like, it's population pretty much, I don't know, like triples or something like that day to day in ordinary times with commuters um, and so on. It's, um, beautiful river and a lot of like really amazing, interesting things that um, folks are doing in the town to reimagine and reinvent um, uh, the space that's around them. 
Um, it's also got a really great bookstore called Totem Books. I'm just going to shout out. <laughs> um, but it's also, but it's, but yeah, it's, 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 it's had a tough, you know, 50 years plus. Um, essentially, Flint was, um, as Flint was growing really rapidly as a General Motors hub town. This is the found birthplace of General Motors and, and thus like drew um, people from all over the country and world to work at its, um, at its plants. Um, Well-paying, stable jobs too, um, in part because this is a union town. This is effectively where the United Auto Workers was founded in the 1930s sit-down strike. Um, and, um, but uh, one of the, um, I think, decisions that led to the setting it up for vulnerability later is that the city was being built um, as, um, on, um, on segregation. Right, like it was a it was a brutally segregated town. There were only two neighborhoods where you could live if you're an African American person, and um, and those boundaries um, were enforced at every level of public and private life. And this is one of the most segregated cities in the entire country. Um, like even among segregated cities, it's especially segregated. Mm. And as more and more people are coming to town, this is becoming increasingly untenable. You know, like conditions are getting more crowded and predatory and people have, have just had it, right? Um, and there was this uh, huge movement for fair housing that emerged out of Flint and became the first city in America to pass by a popular vote um, a fair housing ordinance. Um, it passed only by like 30 votes. It was very, very um, close, but it was um, also unprecedented, huge triumph. Um, and then um, in the wake of both civil rights and fair housing laws, the city of Flint's population began going in the other direction. Starting in 1970 census, that was the first census where the population down, took a downturn. And that is um, down, that spiral downward has continued on ever since alongside the disinvestment of um, General Motors and other industri in industries and a number of other ways of, um, dis of entities disinvesting in the town. So what we've got now is a city that is less than half the has less than half the population it used to have. It is a population that is um, majority African-American. It is a population that has, is about 40% under the federal poverty line, um, which is like, ridiculously high. It, it's, it's, but it's also, its boundaries are just the same as it's ever been, right? You know, so like the, the, the city has a responsibility to provide public services across the same geography, the same, um, using the same infrastructure that it always had, but it has far fewer people and far, far poorer people um, able to pay into that. Um, Lost so about half of its population. I mean, yeah. from about 200,000 to just under 100,000 in terms of who's paying taxes for all this. Right, yeah, like there's, plus, plus you know, you have like the, um, those property, those house, housing values are going down, um, yeah. not least during the last recession. Plus you have the state um, cutting um, revenue sharing, to, yeah. which is the funding it provides to all its cities. And there's yeah. far less room, breathing room in a city like Flint. Plus, you know, the, in, the industry that's paying less and like that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, just the it's perfect just, storm. It's, it's a perfect, it's a perfect storm situation. And, um, and this is what, uh, and, and so while a lot of times I think there's been, you know, for cities like Flint, the problem has, you know, when people try to explain why it's a problem, it lo local leadership is often like pointed to being like, well, if you had elected better leaders or if you had cut the budget or if you had done this, um, sometimes local leadership is a problem, <laughs> but like, but it is certainly not the most or only problem. There's a larger systemic issue of, 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 of urban disinvestment 
and systemic racism that um, set the conditions that make a place like Flint precarious. Yeah. And then the other piece, of course, speaking about leadership, is the fact that it wasn't locally elected leadership that was in place at the time this fateful decision was made um, to switch the water source. Yes, this is really important. And I think even in, even in Michigan, um, where folks are closer to the story, it, it, the nuances of it get a little bit lost. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Flint had a series of emergency managers um, over the years in which the decisions were made that led to the switch and prolonged the crisis, I think, after it. Um, so, and, uh, and uh, yeah, so like that, that included the decision to leave the Detroit water system, the, the decision to sign on with a new water system that wasn't yet built, and the decision to use the Flint River um, and, um, and treat that water at the rebooted city plant, and the decision to stick with that plan um, even as problems were escalating. All of that was made under the emergency manager who had total political authority. The mayor and city council had no authority. And the, the emergency council, manager yeah. was appointed by the governor of the state. Yeah. This is, and this is why this was like a uniquely dramatic scenario, right? This water crisis is also a democracy crisis. Those things are very much intertwined. There you go. So that really sets the stage. And so now, um, almost immediately, uh, people started seeing that um, the water didn't smell good. It didn't taste good. I mean, some people were having water come out of their faucets that they described as it looked like coffee. Um, people started bringing bottles of water to the city council chambers and very, pretty quickly. Uh, citizens started complaining about this. But over and over and over again, um, all of the different um, systems in place, let's say, to protect the water and to test the water and to make sure that it was right, uh, kept um, assuring people that it met all the standards, that it was absolutely fine. And um, what comes across in your book that's so clear to me is initially they started scrambling to sort of adjust to things that maybe were bacteria and things that they could maybe uh, address with some tweaking of whatever they were doing to clean that water. Uh, but then it definitely moved into a stage where um, it seemed as if the people in charge were uh, more concerned about defending their decision than in protecting the people. And the thing that I remember being a resident of Michigan, the very first like, whoa, big red flag was when General Motors decided to stop using the water because it was um, corroding. I believe they were building engines in one of their plants and it was corroding the engines that they were building there. And they switched to another water source um, while at the same time, all of the officials continue to tell concerned residents, everything is fine. Take us from yeah. there. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of the heart of it. I mean, it's, it's one reason this, this whole thing is so unsettling. It's not like, unfortunately, Flint is not the only community in this country that has had issues with water quality, right? Um, I think the unique, one of the unique situations is that it was, um, it went on for as long as it did, despite 
a number of a number of red flags. <laughs> um, I think like eighteen months. Oh. Yeah, it, it was a year and a half before the state even conceded that it was indeed a citywide problem. The water was not being treated at all with corrosion control, which meant that um, when it passed through the pipes, the pipes were corroding. The old pipes, including the lead pipes, this is why we had a lead crisis. But it also meant that other metals were getting into the water, and this is why it looked brown because you would have rust at, in your water because the pipes are like corroding; they're rusting um, by the time they get to get to you, get to you, the user. Um, and yeah, there, this is um, it was it was. Uh, people were complaining about its impact on their health, um, on their children's health. They were, um, there was uh, the, this General Motors engine plant that found that the water was corroding their um, parts so seriously that they were willing to go through the trouble and expense of hooking up to a suburbs water source that still got water from Detroit. It was all very confusing, especially for folks on the ground. But one of the huge things that made a difference here is that this is a community that has organizing in its blood. You know, it was a union town. It had that fair housing fight. Um, it, is, it, it, it fought very hard against emergency managers. As things started, people started talking to each other and piecing together um, different stuff about the water. They were you know, they started canvassing door to door. They started doing their own citizen science. They started educating themselves and reaching out to outside experts to kind of collaborate and gather more and better data to show that indeed this was a citywide water crisis and they were right. They were right. Absolutely They right. did. And that's why you and I are talking about it to this day. Yeah. And I mean, I, I really want to encourage everybody who's listening to read your book because um, what you did in terms of um, the, the power of storytelling, and I, and I do want to talk about that um, during this conversation, um, where you brought it to life. It, it's a, it, all these very, very important facts, but it's the people. And the way you told the stories of the people and the important people and uh, who played a role in, in this, in this long fight. And um, they were the residents. Um, they were outsiders with expertise in this who cared. They were some key journalists. There was a key doctor. And uh, I want to just ask you to give us a little sense of two of them. And, and one is uh, Leanne Walters. Um, and then the other um, is Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. And so I want to ask you to give us a sense of the role that Leanne Walters, who was a resident who saw this impact on her family that she played in this. Sure. Yeah, she, she played a, a really significant role in this. Um, she is uh, or was a Flint mom of four children who's living in the city. And her house was dubbed a sort of ground zero for mapping out the lead problem. Um, she had uh, 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 two uh, young twin boys and one of them was immunocompromised and um, over time like he became you know became clear that he was he was straight up lead poisoned um, and, um, and in addition they were noticing a number of other symptoms in their whole family including hair loss splotchiness on their skin like aches and things like that they were that um, they didn't initially all realize might have something to do with the water but increasingly this becomes clear um, her her house um, you know if she was trying to figure out what was going on with this she ended up like connecting to um, a guy who worked at the EPA in Chicago, 
who really went, his name's Miguel del Toro, he really went out of his way to go to her house and, and do some unique uh, tests. Um, like the, the, the city was initially sort of saying like, okay, um, in response to some of her complaints and concerns about the water, they acknowledged that she had an unusually long lead service line and they were like going to replace it and okay, and we'll fix this problem. But with Miguel del Toro from the EPA's like research and her, um, her, her and her family's like observations and, and research as well, like they were able to show that this was uh, not just a household problem, it was a citywide problem. It's, it, this, is the, this is like, this is the sort of the ground zero of where we started to document how there was um, uh, no corrosion control used in any of the water, which to be clear is breaking federal law and putting, in, in putting puts everybody's health at risk. You know, they're able to show that because it's not being treated properly, this whole system is vulnerable, not just this one Walters household, right? Um, so the, the EPA guy writes a draft report of this. He gives a copy to Leanne. Leanne passes this on to um, um, uh, Kurt Guyette, who some folks might remember from the Metro Times, but has been uh, uh, moved on to uh, sort of doing a journalism-like role at um, the ACLU of Michigan. He'd been spending a ton of time looking at water and emergency management at Flint. So she trusted him. And so she handed this to him. He posted about it. And this is the very first time that we had like sort of um, documented, uh, quote unquote, expert, you know, um, we have expert uh, information that was contradicting the data that the state had been citing to say that the water is 100% safe, don't worry about it. Suddenly you had a guy at the EPA um, documenting households in Flint that said, actually, here's, here's this other stuff. This, is, this was huge because it pushed the story and from, um, as a reporter, you understand, it pushed the story from this like, they said, they, they say it's fine, they say it's safe, they say it's fine, they say it's safe, they say it's fine. And this is where we were for basically a year and a half. <laughs> Suddenly you have more and better information that yeah. Leanne played a critical role in getting out there that um, uh, pushed this to a place where we could ask better, tougher, stronger questions um, and yeah. move this along. And then uh, and the other piece here, and as I said, this is a complex story with lots of very important um, people playing major roles and you do a beautiful story of telling about that. Um, but tell us about the, the, the role that Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha played as, as a physician, a doctor uh, working yeah. in Flint, not living in Flint, but working in Flint and the role that she played also sure. in another major tipping point. Yeah, um, and just to shout out her book as well, because she tells her story for folks who want to go in depth with this. She's got a book called uh, What the Eyes Don't See, and everybody should read that too. The more the merrier, you know. Um, but she's yeah, she's um, uh, she's a she's been a pediatrician for some time at um, uh, Hurley uh, Hospital in uh, Flint, Michigan. So working closely with Flint children, um, she had an interesting story because she was. Um, she hap just coincidentally happened to have gone high to high school and be close friends with um, somebody named Elin Batanza, who's a water expert who had professionally in both Michigan and Washington DC at the EPA and elsewhere, like just know what she knew a ton about lead and water and had um, her, her close friend had been, you know, observing how things have been going in Flint with increasing alarm. Um, and she knew from her past experience that nobody was going to do anything basically officials aren't going to do anything 
um, even if you can prove that the water is saturated with lead and it's a huge problem in breaking laws and stuff. Like, even if you can prove that, nobody's going to do anything until you do that extra step of showing it's actually hurt people, children in particular. She knew that. Um, and in a different lead and water crisis in Washington, it took years to get information that, that could document that. There's all kinds of fights with that. So anyway, it just coincidentally, um, their families were like getting together for dinner <laughs> and they were and they're chatting about things, talking about this stuff. And then like, and it suddenly hit, hit the front. She's like, oh my God, you as a pediatrician at the hospital, you have access to that data. She's like, I have access to the data. Um, and, and they, and they, and, 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 um, and they realized she was in a unique position to be able to really like show, like doc, to show how the, the problems with this water were, were hurting kids, you know? And so, the, so she worked on that. She stepped forward into this, like very bravely and to step forward into this, to um, um, get the information and document, to present it in a way that showed that a, there are rising levels um, of lead in the water was correlated with rising level of lead in um, uh, children. And, and, and just to, in case, you know, folks, yeah, tell us aware. why like, that is so it is, important. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. Yeah, lead, lead isn't like iron or copper where some levels are actually healthy for you. You know, like it is all bad. All of it is bad. No lead is good for any person. All of it is bad. None of it is neutral. All of it is bad. <laughs> um, and especially we, for young. Yeah. I mean, it's babies and yeah. young children, oh, right? So, right. And this is her expertise, right? Like she, she saw this up close firsthand. Um, um, infants that would drink um, formula made from like lead saturated water and like little, little children. The reason they're more vulnerable is because their bodies are still developing. So they just suck it up like a sponge and it, and it, and it's absorbed into them. It doesn't just pass through at some point. It stays in you and it acts like, as she describes, as Mona describes it, um, she's like, it's the opposite of like, um, gamma rays for Spider-Man instead of enhancing you and giving you super powers, it takes away your powers. It, it mm. can affect your brain development, your nervous, uh, system, your, um, you know, organs, your impulse control, your, um, it, it can, it's associated with, uh, learning disabilities, all kinds, all kinds of challenges, some of which don't show up for years, which is one of the things people mean when they say the water crisis isn't over. I mean, to a certain extent, we don't really know the impact on these kids. And of course, and it's cumulative too, you know, if you get more lead in the water, you're drinking water as on top of lead that might be coming from paint and um, sources or in the soil or other ways that sources in the environment that um, a lot of us in older cities are especially are vulnerable to. Um, it all, it all adds up. It, it, it adds up and it, and it hurts people. It diminishes their capacity to be the full, fully developed human beings they can be. It is incurable. The, the only thing we can do is get it be preventive. Um, and so she became a powerful voice um, advocating for that. And now we're doing a lot of work with um, some of the recovery efforts and supporting Flint kids going forward. And, um, you know, once it, this was all finally proven, uh, not only that there was lead and that, it's, that it was poisoned water, uh, that it was impacting uh, everyone, uh, in that whole city. But also the fact is, is that the neighborhoods that were, there were some neighborhoods impacted more, where the concentrations of lead in the water were worse. And here we go again. Uh, those neighborhoods were, were the poorest neighborhoods and, and those um, primarily where African-Americans were living. Tell us why. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is one of the things I really tried to show in my book is how the patterns of the past are continuing to um, be visible today. Um, and uh, and that, this is true, even though we've gotten, we've done very good hard work in getting rid of redlining, for example, and official, formal, political, politically enforced, legally enforced segregation. But, you know, we can clearly look around us and see that the patterns of how we're living are really not all that different. And if, in some cases more so um, than, than they were in the past. And the reason is because we haven't taken an affirmative approach to integration as we had to segregation, we, as we did to segregation, right? So, so the, the, it's still playing out. We're, the momentum of the past injustice is still playing out and, and it will until we develop the will to stop it. Um, so in Flint, you could see this uniquely with unique and uniquely dramatic terms with like the inequitability of, 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 of water, the harm from the water. So as everybody in Flint is very clear, the whole city was a victim of this. They, they, they you know, everybody, everybody was ex who was exposed to it was a victim of this, um, especially those who are residents, especially children, and, but also, you know, students, commuters, you know, visitors, you know, like they, they, they try to, you know, be clear that all people were affected. But yes, some people were affected more than others. And you could see this by the zip code level um, about how it was um, the infrastructural inequality that we built into Flint in the past was um, having, was, was visible today in, in the maps of like who was, where the worst water was basically. So some neighborhoods, some neighborhoods like um, the college cultural area, for example, is a gorgeous neighborhood full of beautiful historic homes where a lot of audio, auto executives lived, you know, back in the day, um, doesn't have a lot of vacancy like a lot of other neighborhoods, um, is, uh, used to be a, an officially white neighborhood and is still largely white, um, that neighborhood was exposed to harmful water, but um, was less likely to see um, as much lead or to see it as soon as um, other neighborhoods. One reason for this is because um, it had um, water moving back and forth, you know, very easily. It was flushing the pipes. A neighborhood that was more disinvested in, like the purposely disinvested African American uh, neighborhoods in redlining days, for example, um, was uh, had more vacancy, had had less infrastructure that was less um, well maintained. Water sat in those corroding pipes longer and got more so it got more saturated with toxins. You know, so you, you so somebody would turn on a faucet in one home, and then it would, maybe an hour later, somebody way over there, you know, would turn on another home, and meanwhile, the the water just got more browner, you know, yeah. with a corroded iron. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, the, the, this all sounds very technical, but basically, the the inequities that we designed in um, when we made our cities in the past became visible in the literal fact of the pipes and the water um, at, uh, with uh, here, here in Flint. Um, and, um, and I think it, that gives us an opportunity to, now that we see it, now that we see it, to um, push back against it perhaps with uh, new vigor. Like, can we, what, what, what would it look like if, it's, how do we dismantle that? How do we create a more inclusive um, right. uh, kind of community where nobody bears an undue brunt of harm like that? What, what do you want people listening to this to know about this today, the situation today? 
one thing I want people to not lose sight of is that, that it is a great city. Like, I, I love the city. I love people I met there. I love, like, um, uh, what's possible there. I, I, it has got a, a, you know, unique history and character that I don't want to get lost. I don't want that to be completely erased as we talk about all the very serious challenges and harms, which are also true, but are just not the only story about Flint. It, there's a reason it is worth fighting for. Um, and the second piece is, um, you mentioned how we're more than six years out. We've yet to see any, any accountability uh, for the choices made that led to this crisis. There has been, uh, you know, nobody's gone to prison. At this point, nobody's even indicted. There's been no, there's been no legal accountability for anything at this point. Um, the state um, still says it's investigating. It sort of started the investigation over from scratch. We'll see what comes of it. Who knows? Da, da, da. But um, I think this is um, one reason why this story feels unresolved for a lot of people is because at this point, you know, um, our society's mechanism for sort of justice and reparations has not... Uh, said yet that this, what happened in Flint is not okay. That hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. And what can you share uh, with listeners who um, perhaps are uh, aspiring writers mm -hmm. themselves or certainly have a deep appreciation for someone who can take a very, very complex and important story and using the skills of storytelling to tell it in a way that will draw people in and, and keep people reading, uh, which you did so well, you do so well in this book. Um, what can you share about that art uh, of storytelling to communicate important information? This world holds more stories than I think we have storytellers at this point or those who have really like opted in to identifying as storytellers. And we need these chronicles. We need them for our um, evolution as individuals and as communities. We need them for our history. We need them for our joy and amusement and fun. We need them for um, everything. Um, my background's actually in fiction writing. I've come to be um, nonfiction, a nonfiction person, a journalism person. Um, I think there's a unique kinds of truth that can come out in both venues. But for those of you who want to be journalists, um, I would just say that, like, as you know, the real world is an amazing place. The good stuff is as true as the bad stuff. A lot of it's intersected. <laughs> and so I think some of one of the challenges of being in this line of work is being able to hold hold things, hold more than one story at the same time, right? Like it's never just one thing. Um, and that is um, I think that requires sometimes a level of emotional growth that is painful, <laughs> but, but mm -hmm. if, we're to, if we're in the business of truth, we've gotta, we've gotta be able to hold that. We've gotta be able to hold um, complexity, you know, and, um, and, and learning from others and going bravely forth and asking questions is, are, I, I think, the, the most way, fundamental ways to grow and, and, and do right by it. One thing that has been very clear uh, throughout this um, pandemic is that many of the uh, countries that have done best in the handling of this crisis have been led by women. And there were also, you know, very, very important women who played major roles in, uh, in tackling this, um, 
water crisis in Flint. Uh, do you take inspiration, special inspiration as a woman uh, from seeing the way other women lead? Well, I, I mean, I sure I do. I often do. I, I think I, that's I, yes in journalism and yes in like um, forms of leadership, that, like leadership that is in like forms that aren't the ones I practice, including politics and, and activism and, and, you know, these all these other kind of forms, family leadership, you know, there, that there is a lot of that. Um, I, 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 I do appreciate that because like I, I do know that um, kind of like you were saying at the beginning of this, there's so much like artificial restriction that had real life consequences and that limited that had consequences for people's ability to practice their vocations and had like just made things less good because it denied their fields their talents right <laughs> like, you know um like what gifts people like um the art world is not better if you know the only people in me allowed it to hang in permanent collections of museums or male artists. You know what I mean? Like, like we're just like artificially denying, you know, like restrict limiting the amount of beauty we bring into our lives. And so seeing like, seeing like have seeing people, more women like go for like have the ability to practice their vocations mean, means that we're unleashing like human potential on the individual scale, which is great. And it also means we're unleashing like new and greater possibilities for like, um, for vision and practice and development, all these different fields, whether it's, you know, sports or, or medicine or um, community activism or um, politics or whatever it is. And that's, and that's, that's good for all of us, right? Like, I mean, the, the world is better off when more people are able to be their true selves to, to, to let their get, to put their gifts out into the world. I totally take inspiration from that. And I, it makes me want to be uh, braver and also, like, remember that um, no, no choice is the only choice, right? It's not like you do one thing and it's the only thing you'll ever do, or you do thing one way, it's the only way you'll ever do it. Basically, the, the, this, the, the field of possibilities is expanded. And I don't know how anybody, you know, of any gender couldn't, wouldn't, couldn't be inspired by that. Well, you are an inspiration to me, and I love nothing more than seeing incredible, fantastic, the next generation of young women um, step forward and lead. And you are a, a skilled, I mean, journalist, uh, storyteller, and, um, and voice uh, for everything that you do. So keep up the outstanding work. Uh, Thank you. You're making you. me blush. So, <laughs> I wish honestly, people could so see flattered. you. This is so nice of you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, journalist Anna Clark, author of The Poison City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy. I, I highly recommend this powerful story about um, an important um, lesson. Thank you, Anna. Thank you so much. Have a good weekend, everyone. Let's all go power up. Thanks for joining us at Powering Up. We hope you'll subscribe and share us with your network. And Monica and I would love to hear from you through the Powering Up Women Facebook page or at AndoylLDR on Twitter. And remember, power is the currency for getting things done. Claim yours and put it to work.